Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. I hope all is well wherever you are listening. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is Dr. Joel Modiri. Joel is a senior lecturer in the Department of Jurisprudence at the University of Pretoria. His PhD thesis was entitled The Jurisprudence of Steve Biko, a study in race, law, and power in the afterlife of colonial apartheid. The central concern of his teaching and research relates to the development of a critical anti-racist post-conquest jurisprudence through which to contemplate possibilities for liberation, decolonization, and historical justice in South Africa and beyond. So we had a pretty intense discussion. That That's from his uh, University of Pretoria biography, by the way. Uh, we had a pretty intense discussion, uh, touched on critical race theory and the work of American academic Derek Bell and his concept of interest convergence, amongst other things. Uh, Joel is, uh, I think, he wouldn't deny, controversial in some circles for his outspoken critique of the South African constitution, which he says failed to consider race and, as a consequence, the black South African experience overall in its drafting. Joel takes inspiration from uh, black consciousness, black radical academic tradition, and it does certainly see the writings of Steve Biko as having particular relevance uh, for South Africa today. So please now enjoy my chat with Joel. Joel, thanks so much for your time. Um, you. I know you're at the end of your academic year now, so I suppose tying up loose ends and getting your students prepared for their exams. That's right. That's yeah, right. Cool. Lots of assessments to come. Yeah. Um, you, you, uh, you're in the Department of Law, Faculty of Law, Department of Jurisprudence. Indeed. Um, can you just maybe explain a little bit uh, to myself <laughs> and, right. and the people listening, what, 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 is, what is jurisprudence? Right, happily. Um, well, I should start by saying that the Department of Jurisprudence at the University of Pretoria's Faculty of Law is one, I think, of only three departments of jurisprudence. So in other words, in, in South right. African law schools... I had, I had a feeling it was quite a... Standalone. Yeah, That's it right. was quite, it's quite a specialized That's right. field of law. Um, which is a curse and a, and, a, and a gift, but I'll say a bit about that mm. shortly. UNISA has one, um, pub, uh, UWC has one, but combined with public law, so public law and jurisprudence, right. we are the only department of jurisprudence. Um, we are the three... In the country. In the country. Fascinating. Um, Jurisprudence, this department's name, in fact, historically was uh, the Department of Legal Philosophy, Legal History, and Comparative Law. Right. Okay. We, I would say, in this department in Pretoria, have long specialized not simply in jurisprudence, but in, in critical jurisprudence. But we'll start just by saying that for me, or rather, generally, jurisprudence is, is in its simple definition, the study or the science or the knowledge of law, right? So one can even speak of the jurisprudence of a judge, right? A particular judge's body of legal decisions would constitute a jurisprudence. Similarly, one could speak of the jurisprudence of a country or of a court. Um, in other words, what you're talking about is the manner in which that particular entity or person has understood, systematized, theorized, understood the law. So. More generally than jurisprudence is what are the theoretical, philosophical, historical underpinnings of law? What does law mean? Jurisprudence is what gives sense to law. Jurisprudence is what we mean when we try to make sense of the law. Hmm. So there's a more narrow definition of jurisprudence is that it's the philosophy of law. 
Yes, that and was kind of what I would and have said. And that's its legal said, philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Some people are stickless about this debate, right? So, mm. so for example, for some people, there's something called the philosophy of law, which is understood as what philosophers think about the law, uh-huh. right? Some people speak of legal philosophy, which is, in a way, the basic concept of what law is. Mm. And some people speak of legal theory, which is the science of the form of law. And then some people speak of jurisprudence. But generally, um, my approach to jurisprudence has been that jurisprudence is the side in which we unpack the fundamental presuppositions of law. Mm. Um, one group of scholars in the United Kingdom who are linked to the critical legal studies movement, the British Critical Legal Conference, um, Costas Duzinas and Adam Geary draw a distinction, however, between what they call restricted jurisprudence versus general jurisprudence. For them, restricted jurisprudence is this obsession with the question of the legal and seeing the legal as separate from the political, the social, the historical. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a restricted jurisprudence is associated with what we call legal positivism, with certain conservative approaches to legal science and the legal form. Uh, Justice Scalia in the United States. Justice Scalia would be the prime example of that, right? theories of originalism. So what restricted jurisprudence essentially is, is this assumption that law has the answers to its own problems. Right? Um, or that free law, of its context. Free of its context. Yeah. That in fact the context is toxic to law, that the context um, renders law impure. So, mm. for example, the great positivist theorists, I mean, just think of the titles of their books. John Austin has a book called The Province of Jurisprudence Determined, right? So, this is someone who's trying to set boundaries between jurisprudence, which is for him the proper domain of law, and everything else has to be excluded from the legal inquiry. Mm. Another uh, Austrian positivist, Hans Kelsen, has a book called The Pure Theory of Law, right? So, the idea here is he's trying to purify law, the moral, the historical, the philosophical. All of these things are seen as um, afflicting the logical, rational purity of law. Right? They belong elsewhere, in other places. Mm. Authors argue that this restricted jurisprudence takes form particularly in certain developments in European modernity when there's this attempt to compartmentalize knowledge into disciplines. Right? When there's a need to say there's something called law, there's something called philosophy, there's something called sociology. Posed against a restricted jurisprudence, they offer what they call a general jurisprudence. They argue that historically, the thinking of law has been at the heart of all knowledge. I mean, all the great philosophers, all the great social scientists, all the great theologians, indeed, even all the great scientists were interested in the question of law. And how do we know this? We know this because all these great thinkers of the ancient Western world, and we might even extend it to the non-Western world, were always thinking about how do human beings live together. That's called the social bond. How do human beings um, share the world? Interact. Interact, live together. Those are the, that's the basic jurisprudential question, in fact, is how do human beings share the world, but also how have human beings deprived each other of the world? So mm. in the meaning of a general jurisprudence, law is about the social bond. Law is about how the social world is constituted, how the social world is remade, how the social world is yeah. reimagined. If that's so, then law is about identity, race, class, gender, law is about political economy, resources, distribution, law is about culture, cultural difference, law is about language, law is about meaning, law is about art, law is about sense-making, law is inextricable from the other disciplines. It right? ca- and it cannot be separated from the society in which it exists. That's right. That's the most important thing, right? That's the most important thing, that the social is what's driving the meaning of law. Now, this does not mean, as they explain, that when we teach law, we simply forget the legal rules, but it's that the legal rules must be read, understood, and filtered through the 
complexities of the social, right? As opposed to simply erasing them or treating them as abstract or irrelevant. So um, that has been my approach to jurisprudence, uh, um, um, uh, has been to say, if we're going to talk about law in South Africa in the 21st century, after 1994, we have to think about the reconstitution of the social after apartheid. We have to think about the reconstitution of the social after colonization. Um, because yeah, it would. Uh, I mean, what what would strike what strikes me now is is if you are talking about jurisprudence as a study of the theory of law in in South Africa in particular, right. it's quite a complicated, then multifaceted, multi-stage kind of. I suppose pre-colonial, colonial, apartheid, post-apartheid would be sort of. I think the phases that would immediately spring to my mind. That's right. Um, and are you, I mean. I want to just get a little bit into your um, your sort of take on all of that because uh, you're in your biography, you know, you, your research uh, it says uh, relates to the development of a critical anti-racist post-conquest jurisprudence uh, through which to contemplate possibilities of liberation, decolonization, and historical justice. So you're essentially saying that I mean we we still haven't achieved that in this absolutely in, in our in our post apartheid legal uh, transformation or that's lack right. of it. That's right. So can you just um, sort of explain, because you, uh, in, in some of your reading it seems to me that you're even questioning um, the role, or, 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 or you see the, the constitution, our much lauded constitution as almost a hindrance to liberation. That's if right. I can it put it absolutely that is right there. In other words, I'm trying to theorize among other things uh, the conditions that led to the making of this constitution and um, developing an argument that, that this constitution does many things, but one of the things that it does is that it violates the principle of historical justice. So there's no way to get into that door without working in the vein of a general jurisprudence, right? Um, you see, I guess the impulse of my work is... So the one I've already explained is this attempt to expand the meaning of what jurisprudence is. Mm. But it's, a, it's an expansion of jurisprudence and in another you say that's sense. kind of necessary if you want to confront Absolutely. the role of law Absolutely. and our constitution. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, you couldn't think about the problem of justice if you aren't working in the realm of a, of a general jurisprudence, I think. Um, but I've also been trying to expand the terms of South African legal theory itself. Uh, because of known historical dynamics, um, South African legal theory, jurisprudence, legal philosophy, and cognate disciplines has been shaped by the epistemic standpoint and imagination of uh, people who predominantly come out of the political community of the conqueror, right, white people. And um, already by the 70s, but even before that, um, theorists and scholars in the field of the sociology of knowledge have long pointed out that it is almost entirely impossible to extricate your own interests and upbringing and background and socialization into the manner in which you come into research and knowledge production. If that's so, we have a bit of a crisis that white people uh, control the terms of theorizing about law in a black majority African society. This is not simply an irritation or an annoyance, it's a problem of justice itself, right? It's a problem of epistemic justice. So I'm trying to say, so my starting point is everything we know about law and everything we know about the Constitution comes out of this epistemic standpoint. 
varied kinds. I would say there are broadly three traditions of white thought in South Africa, whatever you want to call them. Conservative, liberal, leftist. <laughs> Biko long collapsed that distinction. And when we get to Biko, I'll say a bit about why his collapsing of that distinction is so important. Mm. But um, all those varieties of white thought have essentially set the terms of legal theorizing. And what they all share is a evasion of the problem of race in different ways. Each of them ignore the problem of race or minimize it, and each of them ignore the question of settler colonialism and conquest and prefer rather to start the theorizing of justice from apartheid. Now, as we know, apartheid is a 46-year historical episode in the ongoing life of the place we call South Africa. Um, but apartheid, as a starting point, has benefits, as you might understand, for any white person, right? It erases the fact of being a settler, right? It takes that off the table as a... As, a, as, a, as, a, as an issue for justice, right? So mm. the issue of justice no longer settler colonialism is to redress the racial discrimination and segregations of apartheid, but not to deal with the founding of South Africa through violence and through the imposition of a Western order of sociality and through the imposition of white supremacy. So all these traditions of white thought share this problem. The race is like their Achilles heel. All of them are struggling with this, rightly so, <laughs> rightly so. It would be amazing if they did. So. So when I started my scholarship, I identified very much, as I'm saying, with the critical or radical traditions of white thought. So Marxism, post-structuralism, mm -hmm. those who were useful because they helped open up, question, disrupt, problematize. But there was still this niggling problem. Where is the obvious thing that needs to be problematized? I mean, the making of South Africa, even the most conservative historians confirm, it was race. That was the thing that... Um, was the principle of social organization. That's the thing um, that um, organized power relations, organized, and not simply power relations, but also organized consciousness and the psyche. Right. And that could be said for a lot of countries around the world. That's as well. right. All the great settler colonies and all the great white supremacist states. Race. So how is it possible that a new jurisprudence for post-94, and I'm fast forward, I'm skipping all that, doesn't deal with race, first of all, and secondly, doesn't have black intellectuals involved in, the, in its creation. And thirdly, even if it has no black South African intellectuals because of the historical exclusion of blacks from the academy, doesn't engage with black thought or thought about race from other parts of the world. You see this importation of all the great Western philosophers, Immanuel Kant, Hegel, Marx, uh, Hannah Arendt, Jean-Luc Nancy, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, but no black thinkers. Where is the fanon? Where is the so? This became, for any scholar, a crisis of obvious consciousness. How could I, sensibly? So I share the basic principles of a critical jurisprudence. Law is political. Law is about power. Law is tied to social interests. Law cannot be understood outside of a complex interdisciplinary reading. I share that. But I differ with the terms in which that is done, which is that it's done in a way that silences race. And if it silences race, it silences the black experience. So the question I've been asking, following the tradition of critical race theory, following the tradition of black thought, following the tradition of black consciousness, pan-Africanism, is how would our understanding of law change if we foregrounded the black historical experience. Black historical experience is the accumulated stories of what it has meant to be black in the world. Oppression, resistance, 
being African and black at the same time, you know, the invention of the Negro, as it's called, you know, destruction of our African identity, our remaking as these creatures called blacks or Negroes or, you know, there are all kinds of names, Bantus, Kathas, Coloreds, you niggers, I mean, the coterie of names. Too much. That, that whole accumulated global historical experience, if you were to bring that into the study of law, would you still think the same? Hmm. If you were to bring the long memory of black people being a colonized people, would you still celebrate this constitution? And that's really where my research uh, started, um, I think, to become um, politically and intellectually meaningful. The place of the black historical experience in the study of law. Much of this work had already been done, as you're pointing out, by people in critical race theory um, in the US. Um, and again, started under very similar historical conditions. Um, um, well, I was fascinated to read uh, about Derek Bell, who I only started right. uh, reading a, reading a bit um, this weekend, just to to prepare a little bit my mind for this for this discussion. You know, he was when he was tenured at Harvard in 1980. Mm. He was the only black, black uh, <laughs> at at Harvard black University. That's right. And in 2000, there were no black women tenured at at the at Harvard University. Mm. Pretty, I, I don't know, I, 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 maybe it shouldn't have shocked me, but I thought that was just a pretty far out little statistic. Was, was, yeah. was your idea when you wanted to study law, I mean, did you start off wanting to be a kind of hotshot lawyer That's in the right. city, right. and then you suddenly realized that your, 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 your your, your energy was best used elsewhere? That's right, yeah. I mean, of course, the biography of that, in fact, was that I um, had the benefit of running into... I didn't want to sort of preempt your right. career path, but I'm just right, wondering... Right, right. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, um, the um, it was absolutely my intentions I mean, were to be... it's an incredibly nerdy little space you, that's you right. find yourself in. That's right. It, yeah, I think my intentions were definitely to be a kind of corporate, state-aligned lawyer, um, but it, my encounters with two of my teachers who later became my colleagues, Tsepo Matlingozi and Karen Van Marle. Karen Van Marle later became my doctoral supervisor. She's now at the University of Fried State. Tsepo Matlingozi is now the director of the Center for Applied Legal Studies at WITS. They both basically left the department this year. Um, but um, I had read some of their work online. A student does that. If you're diligent, you want to know what your lecturers do, who are these people, what is a professor as distinct from something else. These are things you didn't know as a first year. Mm. And, um, and that led me into a minefield of discovering both of their writings. Tsepo Matlingozi had written a piece called um, Legal Academics and Progressive Politics, in which he develops an excoriating critique of how legal academics are disconnected from community struggles and from the realities of the marginalized. On the one hand, and Karen Van Marle had been long making the case for a much more theoretical philosophical approach to the study of law. These two things combined unevenly in, in um, convincing me that the way to go was uh, through hmm. um, reading and, and philosophy and yeah. theory of law. Derek Bell is who I then discover in this moment as a figure in law who is not only black in the sense of being of color, as they say in the U.S., but wants to bring the question of slavery to the forefront of the constitutional and legal history of South Africa. So he wasn't just the first black guy in the, in, at Harvard Law School and among the first of the uh, black professoriate in the U.S. in law. He was also a pioneer first-generation critical race theorist because um, he... You know, it's, it's remarkable how similar these stories are. Comes into the study of law, studying constitutional law, the word slavery barely shows up. Of course, to a black person, this is obscene. How is this possible? 
right? How can, how can such a constitutive, powerful history simply be written out of the canon, right? So he's the first to point out something's wrong here. So during his time at Harvard, he um, formulates what he calls an alternative constitutional law course called Race, Racism, and American Law, which is about the story of American law does not start for him with post-civil rights law. It starts with slavery. Hmm. And in the, that's in a way, it starts with the, with the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and um, from that, he develops what would later become to be known as critical race theory in the legal academy. Nowadays, critical legal race theory has spread beyond law. I mean, when one says, I'm doing critical race theory, you could be in sociology, you could be in philosophy, and so forth. Yeah. Um, Derek Bell also is interesting because he brings these black nationalist insights into the study of law. I would say that his work is underpinned by three fundamental principles, racial realism, interest convergence and the permanence of racism. The permanence of racism is the most difficult one for people to grapple with. His, his argument essentially is that the vocation of black thought and black activism is a constant struggle against racism and, and, and but that but that this racism is permanent by which racism I think he, is a permanent feature of American life. That's right right. Um, permanent he, he suggests because constitutive, permanent because ongoing, Permanent because some of its effects are not fully known to us. We don't know how deep the impact of racism has been on our psyches and on our social relations. Permanent because of how virtually self-perpetuating it is, how thoroughly normalized and deep it is. Permanent because how long it's been entrenched, right, since the 1600s, both in South Africa and the United States. Um, so he's trying to say, we've got to approach theory the theory of race, with a view to its intractable nature. And his argument, therefore, is against the civil rights optimism right, of this idea that there's a formula for redress and there's a formula for change. And if you just key in that formula, you're going to get it. Like, you know, in South Africa, if we all just become non-racial and if we, become ra if we all embrace the Constitution, mm -hmm. racism will end. Derek Bell is saying it's not that simple. Rainbow Nation kind of kumbaya. No, that's right. So Derek Bell is saying it's not that simple. He's writing after the Civil Rights Movement, after the Civil Rights Act that they win in 64. He's writing in the 70s and he's saying, this is not going to change. And he's saying it's not going to change for another reason. This is the principle of interest convergence. Mm. Change in a hegemonic white society will only happen at the pace that the white society allows it. So what appears like a fundamental transformation in the social order, he says, is in it's fact not that it's a reconfiguration like a and adjustment tweak. in the power. Right. Yeah. Not in a conspiratorial way, but in the sense that the structural and institutional operations are so deeply rooted that they can, they can withstand change. And why society will only allow changes that they can absorb. The argument of critical race theory, therefore, is that any change that you pursue has to be radical, direct, fundamental, and it has to confront the source of the problem. It can't evade it. Otherwise, the power simply regenerates itself. Right. Racial realism is just the other principle saying that if race is the fundamental principle of, so, of, of, of social organization, then race has also to be the central category of analysis. Right. So contrary to what so many people like saying, both in the US and South Africa, stop being obsessed about race. The argument is you should be obsessed about race. If you're obsessed about anything... For the benefit of all of us. That's right. That's what you should be obsessed with. So these three principles of Derrick Bell's work become really the foundation of critical race theory. The later generation of people who come into critical race theory begin to dispute what they see as the pessimism of Derrick Bell's thinking about race. Um, and it's very interesting that right now in the US and it's filtering into South Africa, there's a debate in South Africa 
caused by the emergence of a theory called Afro-pessimism. Not the Afro-pessimism that we know of Africa as a dark continent, Afro-pessimism as an approach in black studies that argues um, essentially that the world is constituted by anti-blackness. And what anti-blackness is distinct from racism, anti-blackness is the assertion that blackness is the antithesis of humanity. Now, if that's so, sure. right. if that's so, that means that all attempts to enter into the category of humanity through rights and so forth, it's not going to work, right? So it's very interesting, and, and, and I will say that the early writings of these guys, Frank Wilderson, by the way, who was part of MK, you might like his book Incognito because it's about his experiences in South Africa. Um, Incognito, Frank Wilderson. Um, they don't engage Derek Bell's work, but I have argued that Derek Bell's work is fundamental, um, to this basic pessimism. Mm. I mean, um, I don't like the words pessimism and optimism. Um, um, I think they, they, I think they capture the wrong features of something. I mean, I think if you're a liberal, a white liberal in South Africa, you have much to be optimistic about, <laughs> and 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 it makes sense to be a constitutional optimist, and it made sense to be a constitutional optimist at a certain time in South African history. Right. When it appeared to many people, although I dispute facets of that history, when it, made, when it looked like the transition was imperiled by a powerful um, white conservative backlash, mm -hmm. both um, nationally and internationally, it made well, sense to be a constitutional... Just the opposition. violence of that sort of post-unbanning right. of, of the ANC, 1990 to 1992. That's right. Uh, thousands still dying. That's right. Um, and, the, and the sort of... It was interesting. I was reading a book review in the London Review of Books uh, yesterday. I'll, 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 I'll get back. I'll, I'll send you that link. I think it was a guy called Ackerman, uh, an American academic, and talking about the sort of process of writing a constitution, yeah, particularly Ackerman, yeah. in, a, in a time of crisis, That's right. and how it does become a kind of almost a, some, an act that's forced upon the nation in order to kind of save that's itself. Right. That's right. Um, but you, you mentioned that the term uh, interest convergence, and I want to maybe touch on that negotiated uh, settlement, mm. the CODESA process, and the, the, the drafting of the Constitution as a moment of interest convergence. Is that, is that something you would consider as a, as, a, as, a, as a relevant analysis of that process? Relevant, but incomplete. Uh-huh. Um, relevant, but um, missing crucial aspects of the of this um, project. So let me just say, you've mentioned that the what I call my project is the post-conquest anti-racist jurisprudence, um, but I, I sometimes just call it a jurisprudence of liberation, which to me means two things which I've just explained. One is a jurisprudence, it's the liberation of jurisprudence, right? Liberating it from a conservative idea of law, but also liberating it from wide epistemic control. That's the one side of it. But it's also a jurisprudence that draws on the liberation tradition in South Africa. There's a very interesting contention in the um, archive of black thought in South Africa as to whether the ANC is a liberation movement or not. And, and that is because of the distinction between a liberation movement and a civil rights movement, or the distinction, in a way, between a civil rights movement and a nationalist movement. The argument, essentially, is that 
from its founding, but particularly from the moment of the adoption of the Freedom Charter, the ANC ceases to be a nationalist movement. Why? Because its fundamental political demands on South Africa are consistent with South Africa's settler colonial character rather than about annulling it. It's about inclusion into the social order, right? So... The, I'm, 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 I'm taking a long view of your question because um, the critique of the constitution elaborated by Africanist constitutional abolitionists, of which I identify myself, is not a critique of the constitution in the first instance of the as, 1996 as a constitution. constitution. As, a, as a concept. No, that's not the fundamental side of the critique. The fundamental side of the critique is the making of South Africa as a racial polity and a settler colonial polity. And it only comes to the constitution when the question is, has this constitution annulled the fundamental settler colonial and racist foundations of South Africa, or has it reconfigured them? So the 96 constitution is a, suffers the critique of South Africa's settler colonial uh, history and logics. It's not, it's not the primary thing, right? So therefore, the critique is not about the negotiated settlement primarily. The negotiated settlement only becomes relevant, in my view, to the extent of its reproduction of an older historical problem that the liberation traditions were facing. The ANC, as you know, has many histories. And there are different ways that that history is periodized. But essentially, the ANC begins as an elite African nationalist movement. Mm. For, you know, um, literate natives, teachers, elites, lawyers, teachers, lawyers journalists, and priests come together to form this movement in order to petition for the rights of civilized Africans. Very important. Um, hmm. the, the first order of petition, in other words, they, their critique was of the excesses of the colonial state, not of the okay. colonial state. Right. They had, in fact, acceded to, the colon to their colonial status. I mean, they belong to this tradition of African intellectuals known as Amakolwa. Some, some of them, uh, you know, liberal new Africans, as they call themselves, and drew this distinction between raw natives, old Africans, backward Africans, uh, and those who, because of access to Western culture, had advanced to the standards of white civilization. Saw themselves as slightly superior than to their fellow Africans. That's right, and, but most and, 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 and therefore took serious issue with their exclusion from the racial polity because they had met its standards of civilization. This became their crisis, right? Why, we can speak your languages now, we pray to your gods now, but you are still treating us like Kafas. We are not Kafas, they are the Kafas, you can you, they're somewhere else, but we, you shouldn't be doing this to us, right? Because we've, accent, we've acceded to our colonial status, but we believe that we want rights within our status as, as colonial subjects. We've, we've, we've labored sufficiently, and the liberals for them are very helpful because the liberals are saying, well, anybody who meets standards of civilization should be allowed in, right? This is the notion of what we call racial historicism. It's the idea that blacks are inferior, but can their inferiority can be remedied, right? Unlike the racial naturalism of the Afrikaners and of the biological racism, which is that blacks are inferior and they can't do anything mm -hmm. about it. That's where things like Bantu education came out of, that we have a permanent destiny of inferiority. The English differed. We are inferior, but we can be tutored. If you work hard a lot. If work we work hard, hard but importantly, imbibe Western culture. Very crucial. That's the, that's the founding of the ANC. The ANC gets radicalized by some accounts around the 40s, partly because that generation of earlier intellectuals gets older, that style of protest petitioning and... Seen to be not... Too slow, yeah. too ineffective, too nice to power, right? 
There was uh, the impact of the Second World War, I think, as well. That's right. That, yeah. Those kind of historical conditions, but also uh, we have to take into account the, the traveling of ideas, liberation ideas that were coming in particular from the US, but actually from the Caribbean through the figure of someone like a Marcus Garvey, for example. Right. So people were beginning to see that the destiny of blackness is more than the, the constraints created here in South Africa. There were many other things, as you might understand. Of course, I mean, the ANC is founded in 1912, and from the period of 1913 to about 1927 is the acceleration of the land, of the of the consolidation, the legal consolidation of land dispossession. 1913 which is a, land act. Right, but, but remember, it gets remade over time, right up until the 50s, actually. Mm, but mm, mm. Uh, these guys are like, oh my goodness, we've assimilated, we've done what the standards you said, but you're still, still, still doing nothing. this. So that obviously makes you shift the analysis. We're like, clearly that's not the reason that, that this is happening to us, right, as a people. This is not the source of the subjugation. The source of the subjugation is racial, irrespective of our standard of civilization. And in any case, why do they have a right to set this, um, the terms for this? So it's, it's said that the 1940s is the moment of radicalization, the ANCU's league, particularly under the visionary imagination of a guy by the name of Anton Lembede, but very much also Eshbim Da, Jordan Magubani, and the younger mentees of these guys, Mandela, Sisulu, Tambo, and then another figure who becomes very important for us, of course, Sobukwe. Hmm are all in different phases of this story. This is the idea that the ANC moves to mass mobilization. It gives us petition, it gives up petitioning and so forth. But my argument is that the ANC does not give up its fundamental character, right? As a, as a, as a, as a, as a, <laughs> I, I want to be like, uh, what is it, hyperbolic to say, as a white supremacist uh, liberation movement because <laughs> of, it accepts the fundamental tenets of the making of South Africa, right? Lembeda comes along, he elaborates what is understood in South Africa as the first theory of African nationalism. Right? And his position is very simple, that the European is a settler, invader, conqueror, and therefore cannot set the terms of civilization and cannot set the terms of um, change. Right. Change has to come from within the African spirit. Now, Lembeda is an interesting guy. He's trained in Western philosophy. He's trained in the German romantics, people like Hegel and so forth. And you see some of this writing. And, and he's important also because he believed that too much time was being spent on material, political, economic change and not enough on the cultural, spiritual, moral shift in the African mindset in order to prepare them for a revolutionary subjectivity. Right. So this is also an important turn because these guys are saying the problem of these earlier elite guys in the ANC was because they might have had a good political, economic strategy and mindset and they were well trained in Western cultures, political institutions and systems, but they had a wrong spiritual, moral and mental mindset. They wanted to assimilate. They saw their culture as feeble, as meaningless, as having no value. He says, no, in fact, this is how they've colonized us. They've colonized our consciousness first. It's what the Komarovs call that it wasn't just a colonial state that was imposed in South Africa. It was a state of colonialism that was imposed as well. So Lempel is a crucial figure. He breaks this and he introduces these two dimensions to the um, struggle for liberation, the exterior and the interior the psychological and the physical, whatever people want to call it, but he's saying you've got to, you've have, you have to build a revolutionary mindset. Africans are not revolutionary because they're oppressed. They're revolutionary because they think their oppression is wrong. Right? This is important. You know, mm. This guy's writing in the 40s. 
these kinds of things only happen in the US when people started talking about standpoint epistemology. So what we have here is a whole tradition of guys who, by the way, are not trained in these disciplines and who don't have the luxury of philosophizing all day, coming up with really powerful theoretical formulations of the political. Coming out of their reality. Coming right out of their reality, right? And not simply translating their reality, but ref being self-reflexive about it, mm. right? Very uncomfortable part of what Lembede is saying is that black people have to take responsibility for the degree to which they've consented to their subjugation. Right? Mm. That hurts. Yeah. Um, Lembede dies at around 33, uh, the age of 33, um, and we enter the phase of the 50s. Now, what is happening in the 50s? Many things, but essentially, a major contention begins to emerge in the ANC. One is about the political culture of the ANC that the ANC is beginning to take intellectual guidance from white, right, white uh -huh. liberals and white communists. This is a serious problem for them. And now here's the point that the, the Africanists are not anti, are not, they're anti-communists, they're anti-white communists, but they're not, but they're not pro-capitalism. And this is sometimes uh -huh, people okay. just confused, right? Is, is this yeah. sort of laying the groundwork then for the split, the PAC? For how the PAC splits. But yeah. the reason I'm telling this long story is because this, what the split, when the, by the time the PAC splits from the ANC, it splits because of two things. One, believing that the ANC had surrendered that African nationalist program of the ANC Youth League of 1949, which was based on confront and resolve the historical injustice. Don't compromise with it. Don't negotiate with it. Not because negotiate. Not because they don't want. Not because confrontation is fun, but because the nature of the system is that it can't be negotiated. It, means it has to be confronted. It has to be confronted. Settler colonial politics. Remember, settler colonialism is is a radical political technology. Why it's come to stay? And they will defend their settlement by death, and that's what they did. They ensured through violence. By the way, both even against each other, I mean, even the English and the Afrikaners, and particularly the English concentration camps of the Afrikaners, settler colonies were a very violent process. It's established through the most unbelievable violence, and once that violence has uh, sedimented and entrenched itself, then, you, then it runs itself normally. This is the point I'm trying to make, is that the, these guys are starting from an analysis of, the, of settler colonialism as a permanent and ongoing crisis. South Africa is still conquered and invaded territory, no matter how long ago this thing started, whether you say 1652 or eight, the 1800s or 1910, right? The ANC disputes this analysis by saying, in fact, it's untrue. South Africa is a diverse society. And of course, the Africanists are saying, how did it become diverse? We, we know it's diverse, but how did it become diverse? This becomes the problem. And then the Freedom Charter consolidates this problem by saying what? South Africa belongs to all who live in it. Erases the problem of conquest. And therefore, does what? Weakens the capacity of the African to claim justice against the colonial state, right? Mm. Not from the colonial state, against it, right? So on what basis can the Africans claim a nationalist program if South Africa belongs to conquered and conqueror, dispossessed and dispossessor? This is unacceptable to them. And at this point, they believe the ANC has given up on, an, on a liberation struggle. They, because what do they want to be liberated from now? The NC is giving up on a liberation struggle and now is wants to be in, uh, an inclusion struggle. Let's put it that way, pushing an assimilation struggle. Secondly, another problem between the Africanists and the Congress tradition, or the Azanian tradition and the Congress tradition, is that the ANC has a poor reading of the colonialist discourse of race. Right. So the ANC around the 50s uh, 
begins to talk of non-racialism. Actually, this term started actually among whites as a way of describing uh, the unification of the different white Wheels. groups. Right. Oh, what? okay, sorry. No, of combining you're... the English and the African. That was uh-huh, the first okay. time the word non-racialism emerges. The second time non-racialism emerges is as an attempt to reconcile the differences between Africans and Indians, mm. right? To justify why one well, there were the other separate Congress movements, the, right. the four That's wheels right. of the Congress, the four wheels of the Congress yeah, movement. Yeah, yeah. The PSC said, if we accept that race is a fictitious social category created for purposes of subjugation, race is a fictitious category created for purposes of subjugation. There is no such thing as a white person outside of white supremacy. That's the analysis of the PSC. For the ANC, there is something called white people who are separate or abstract from white supremacy. The analysis doesn't make sense because if you think there's something called a white person outside of white supremacy, that means you actually think there is something called race, some real fundamental entity called race. There are white people who can choose or not choose to be part of white supremacy or not. You see? ANC calls what they do non-racialism the four wheels, but it's not non-racialism. It's multiracialism. It's many races working together. And therefore, the struggle of the ANC is for racial equality, for the races to be equal, but therefore, for the races to still exist. But if race exists only for the purpose of subjugation, because it has no biological, ontological, metaphysical foundation, then even if you talk about racial inequality, there still be that colonialist founding inequality within the category of race. That is the problem that we are now facing post-1994, is the fact that the ANC is understood here to have misdiagnosed this problem of race. The reason I'm emphasizing this period rather than the Constitution is because I see the Constitution as the materialization, essentially, of the Congress tradition's philosophy of change. In this way, the ANC in a way, got what it wanted post-1994. So, so you see, the point I'm trying to make is that that's my quarrel. Right? My quarrel is not with the Constitution. It's it's the, the Constitution is a product of this long acceptance of the settler colonial edifice in South Africa. The ANC essentially believed that you couldn't reverse the effects of settler colonialism. Right? That's another reason why you ab- they've abandoned the liberation struggle. Liberation is the politics of the impossible. I mean, of course it's, it's going to be hard to undo a powerful system with entrenched interests. That's a no-brainer. But if you only submit to the pragmatic and the realistic, you cease to be engaged in a struggle for liberation because you simply accept it the way the world is. Liberation is about remaking the world. It's about world-making. A new book by a scholar called Adam Getachew, World-Making After Empire, trying to show how pan-Africanism was many things, but one of the things it was, it was a project of world-making, remaking the world. Azania, the Azanian tradition, the PAC, the Black Consciousness Movement, that's what they were saying. South Africa can't be reformed. South Africa can't, can't host black life. It, it, it's, it can only be parasitic on white life. It has to be remade. Here's what's interesting about these guys. Prophetic, because everything they're saying... Almost in textbook form, I've defended it as, like in my, I argue that Biko, text, in textbook form, because some people say Biko is outdated, it's from the 70s, so you need to modify it and spice it up a bit for the, for the present. The most powerful of Biko's insight persists today as though, right? So, yeah. so just to close this point, the, 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 the argument that I'm making around jurisprudence is therefore that 
what we have in South Africa in the form of the dominant constitutional, transformative constitutionalism and human rights discourse is in essence two things coming together. The Congress tradition's philosophy of South, African, South Africa and change in South Africa congealing with certain traditions of Western liberalism to create the new South Africa. And I'm saying, but if there is another tradition with a parallel or even antithetical analysis, we need to bring it back to South Africa because we've, we are seeing that this one is not working. So it's almost like we've just achieved the first phase, the bourgeois phase of our revolution mm. in, that, in that sense? You see, um, it's not even about phases. The major differences between these traditions, as I'm saying, between the Azanian or Africanist tradition and the Congress tradition is not a tactical difference. It's not um, one one's more radical change or faster change and the other is slower. It's a fundamental, fundamental disagreement over the diagnosis of the South African social reality. What is this place? How was it made? Who are the people who must remake it? And so on and so forth. Fundamental questions. So the disagreement, therefore, the critique is not that change in South Africa is happening too slow. Is that we've gone the, whole, the wrong path completely. Um, you know, so I want to distinguish it because, of course, most people, even Congress people, accept we've, gone, we, we've not made enough progress. And there are many reasons for that. There are global reasons, there are local reasons, there are issues of political will, maladministration, um, and so on and so forth. Um, um, so many people accept what I call the implementation critique that mm. we could have done more in the past 20 years. That's not my critique. Because to say we could have done more is to accept the constitution and the current paradigm of law as fine and therefore just needing to be accelerated and improved upon. I don't believe that. I think we need a completely different paradigm, a liberationist paradigm, um, um, and, and, and uh, not an integrationist or reformist paradigm, the radical um, remaking of South Africa from, from its very foundations paradigm. So that's the split. That's where we, we, that's where we cross paths <laughs> almost entirely. And that is why... That is pretty... That's right. You know, um, and I'm just wondering how your, your colleagues react to that sort of debate. I mean, the, the, the university as a space for this kind of discussion is... Um, well, uh, <laughs> the fees must fall, roads must fall, event... Um, and the reintroduction of the discourse of decolonization has certainly um, opened up a space. But it's a space of contestation. Um, I mean, I, 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 um, I think South Africans, in inverted commas, um, we are all agreed need a serious um, conversation about itself. Um, and my modest claim is simply that part of that conversation involves reckoning with the Africanist tradition, paying attention to these guys, asking how it happened that these guys were erased in the story of the, South, of the new South Africa. Right? That's part of it. You know? and, and so, yeah, people are very uh, hostile, particularly the, the critique of the Constitution. I mean, I think people are threatened and people are annoyed and people are um, oh. reacting with all kinds of defensive formation, melancholia, defensiveness, uh, orthodox dismissiveness, straight-out racism, patronization, myth-making, you know. Uh, but it's all part of the game, I would say. 
Um, you mentioned Steve Biko, and I did uh, touch, uh, I, I did dip into him a little bit as well over the weekend, mm. and I was intrigued. I, I just sort of by chance came across one of those I write what I like pieces. Yeah. Um, talking about hastily arranged integration. That's right. Um, cannot be a solution to the problem. It's rather like expecting the slave to work together with the slave master's son to remove all the conditions leading to the former's enslavement. Mm. Secondly, this type of integration as a means is almost always unproductive. The participants waste a lot of time in an internal sort of mudslinging design to prove that A is more of a liberal than B. In other words, a lack of common ground for solid identification is all the time mass manifested in internal strife inside the group. It goes on to talk about you know, the heart of true integration is the provision of each man, each group to rise and attain the envisioned self. Each group must be able to attain a style of existence without encroaching on or being thwarted by another. Um, out of this mutual respect for each other and complete freedom of self-determination, there will obviously arise a genuine fusion of the lifestyles of the various groups. This is true integration. That's right. Um, That's right. How did you get to Steve Biko during your uh, education and academic journey? Yeah. Right, so I've already told you the story of how I came to critical race theory. And then, of course, I had to deal with the fact that this is all out of the U.S. American experience. So I had to start thinking about how to expand the archive of critical race theory, and um, it just felt right. Initially, I was going to write on Franz Fanon in jurisprudence, but in fact, some of that work had already been done by people in the in the in, in Europe and the U.S. Uh, and so um, it, it 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 just became clearer that that black consciousness would be the site of starting. Was, then, was, was black consciousness part of your upbringing? Was, what, did you come from a sort of political home where, where, where the PAC or BC or Azapu or those kinds of organizations were supported or discussed in yeah. some sense? Or? No, I mean, I think I came from a pro-ANC family of, of kind of, you know, social workers and civil servants. But I came, I grew up in Etridgeville, which was a PAC mm -hmm. stronghold. That's where people like Zefania Motopeng come from. That's where um, even Mohobera Mose, many people come, come, come out of the PAC. So I was always in that milieu. And um, because growing up in the, being born in the early 90s as I was and, and growing up in that period, you know, um, almost all of the, media that you were consuming was ANC-centered, right? But here I, I, I could see another thing, you know. Our neighbor, for example, was one of the leaders of the PAC branch, um, and the man who was the, the who owned the Spaza shop, um, in fact, was a very... Um, uh, Mark, Mark Sheenas, in fact, is his name, was a comrade of Jacob Zuma's, but he was in the PAC. Dikhang uh, Moseneke also comes from the PAC. Okay, yeah. I've come from Etridgeville PAC. So um, there were two things. One, the, we always discussed politics and the social reality of black life. Um, but I came very late to black radicalism. I mean, I, I, uh, when I started studying law and even when I was doing critical race theory work, I think I, I came to it with a Congress mindset of accelerate integration, accelerate inclusion, and so forth. It was only when I followed through the implication and started studying black nationalism that it, it became clear that actually not all black people who were fighting against apartheid were fighting for the same thing, mm. right? They, they actually were different traditions that had different analyses and different programs of change. And I became interested in these radical guys because it seemed, firstly, it felt instinctively right what they were saying. It felt commonsensical that if you want to change something, you do it thoroughly, clearly, you, can, you, know, you clear out the social order, you remake it, and everybody 
begins to build a solid foundation for ethical coexistence. It just made sense that that, that just sounded right as opposed to compromising with an un, in an unequal situation. It, the, the Africanist position and the black radical and the Biko position just always made more sense to me. When Biko talked about the need to abolish race rather than to make the races equal, it just made perfect sense to me. And uh, so that's how I come into black consciousness, and I realized that not only that we that you know and and, and what I knew about Biko because I knew about him, I knew two things about Biko. One, everything I saw about Biko on t-shirts and whatever was that he was all about loving yourself as a black person and being proud and loving your self-esteem and so forth. Um, I always found that um, depoliticizing and ahistorical. Being able to read him and read about him and read the traditions to which he belongs. He's reading Franz Fanon. He's reading Malcolm X. He's, he's reading, he, his brother was a PAC guy. He's obviously reading Zobukwe. Being able to trace the tradition of black consciousness opened up a whole universe for me and, 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 and also opened up a different intellectual practice for me. Here are guys who are thinking on the ground. And here are guys who, in the middle of the most brutal system of domination, comparable only to what is happening to blacks in the U.S., for example, at this period of time, still believe in the importance of ideas of, for thinking about the social. It just struck me as necessary to begin to do what others have done with other thinkers, is to unpack these ideas, right? But I didn't want to just unpack Biko and say to people, oh, this is what Biko said, and because sometimes people read Biko as past inspiration, right? It's someone to look up to. But those passages that you've read, shows that Biko is not talking to 1970 South Africa only. He is imposing himself onto the present, right? He, he is almost like um, transporting himself into the present by warning us and theorizing about how a transition can fail if it follows a path of integration. And almost everything he said with some amendments fits into the paradigm of the new South Africa. So I, I wanted to do two things, not just to, for my project, bring up Biko's thinking, I wanted to do so by in a way that would show that Biko and Sobukwe and the Azanians and Malcolm X and Franz Fanon cannot be reconciled with the philosophy that underpins the new South Africa. Right? So the book project, which is, is no, it has not begun. Uh, this is the, your, your planned that's book. Right. Yeah. The title is Biko and the Critique of Post-Apartheid Reason. Right, is that post-apartheid reason is an acceptance of the legitimacy of South Africa as a polity, and it is based on the Congress philosophy of change. And those two things are the things I think Biko gives us the tools to question. Right, because if you see how Biko is memorialized by the post-apartheid state, he's memorialized alongside Mandela, alongside Tambo, and so forth. Now he never met these guys because of the situation the, the, at the time of some of them being in prison and some being in exile, and he never even corresponded with them. But um, Mandela is on record as saying that um, the black consciousness generation that came to uh, uh, Robben Island was very difficult to bring under the intellectual control of the Congress guys. Because these were also far more intellectually superior. I mean, you see the ANC, <laughs> I mean, people, it's not to bash it, but the ANC had a very like boots on the ground notion of black struggle. So what in fact began to happen is that in the ANC, there was a kind of elite vanguard of white and black elites who created the programs of the ANC, and then there were the masses who were expected to do this. The PAC changed this vanguardism. The leaders sit in the front, not at the back. 
right? And so black consciousness also comes out of that thing. All blacks must have a shared understanding of the historical situation. So these guys come to Robben Island and start talking about, uh, uh, you know, um, social theory, anti-integration. And the Congress guys are like, what? What happened while we were away? You understand? Here are remnants of the guys we kicked out of the ANC when they left as Africanists, right? So um, I'm trying to dispute that. Biko cannot sit alongside these guys, and, um, and, and Biko is not simply a past inspiration. He's a very vital, vital in the sense of living political force in the black imagination. And it per makes perfect sense to me that post-94s, the failures of post-94 are leading people to revisit these traditions more and more, for more and more people to be interested in, hey, so we came to this new South Africa through the Congress guys. Who are those other guys? What did they think? You know, and it's not just the Africanist tradition in the form of the PAC and the BC movement, but there's also a lot of people who are revisiting the, the, the non-European unity movement, for example, another radical uh, uh, movement to the left of the ANC. So you're seeing a lot of people coming with more voices to the left of the ANC. But the tendency in, among South African scholars, especially white liberal scholars, who of course call themselves leftists, is... The, they want to integrate Biko into their thinking and ra rather than Mark. I mean, I, I would say rather be honest like the way Ellen Payton and the other liberals were to say this Biko stuff must stop because it's corroding any possibility of non-racial of... cooperation, which Biko said was an unequal racist situation in which the white is the perpetual teacher and the black a perpetual pupil. And this is all borne out in the manner in which change is happening. I mean, we're already working on white people's terms by speaking their language. For God's sakes, they should also you know, embrace aspects of the black historical experience as a fundamental, even if traumatizing, feature of thinking about the political. I've often wondered that about our parliament and why English is the language of our That's parliament. Right. You see, I mean, part of the, um, you see, if you accept South Africa as a, a polity, if you say South Africa is legitimate, let's not talk about settler colonialism, let's not talk about how it was made. Remember that the main project of settler colonialism in South Africa was to make South Africa a Europe away from Europe, was to alienate itself from Africa. So... You see that in, 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 in our systems of law and politics, that these are entirely Western systems of politics and African identity only comes in as decoration, right? As the color of the gown or as the flair, as the you know, um, symbols and um, crests, but not as a substantive cultural epistemological source, no. You know, South Africa is a fully westernized country in Africa. It's not unique in that regard. You can go to places like Zimbabwe, Nigeria, and find the judges there still wearing white wigs. You know, Kenya. Yeah. Kenya. It's part of what some people call the colonial hangover. So, you know, I, that for me is not the major side of things. But it's the fact that um, if your struggle is to simply be included into a society that's already been made for you, or made against you in this instance, then you, you won't see anything wrong with its institutions and its languages and practices. What you want to do is make sure that you are acclimatizing to those preconditioned cultural, epistemological, social, political systems. And that's why we have not asked fundamental questions about our political systems, our legal systems, our uh, educational system, at least now people are raising it, and it's become very clear that you don't decolonize a curriculum in higher education. You start in primary school, you know. I mean, by the time people come here, they're already conditioned. Those are the formative years, you know. So um, I'm optimistic, 
nonetheless, that um, we will arrive at a stage where people um, raise questions about fundamental cultural questions. Who, what is this place in relation to the continent? Uh, and I, don't, I just don't think it has, we've asked that enough. Yeah, I've always been also, if you just look at how South Africa relates to the continent, is that it, it, it seems to, I mean, I've traveled a bit in, in various countries, and, you know, when the guys realize you're from South Africa, they're always like, oh, yeah, you're from the South, you know, whatever, whatever. But there's always, just at a broader sort of diplomatic level, there seems to have been this kind of distance, you That's know. That's right. Even when Kosasane Lamini Zuma was the president of the AU, there was kind of, right. she wasn't able to do, yeah, even with bring Mbeki's anything. African Renaissance, bring anything. You know, yeah, even with Mbeki's African Renaissance, it was, a, it was an elite, elitist project, you know. You know it, was, it was an attempt to invoke or, um, what's the word, recycle uh, a European historical moment, the Renaissance. And uh, so... It, the South African imagining of Africa is, even when it, in its sometimes best intentions, alienated, self-alienated. Mm. And that was what settler colonialism was about, right? Remember that the vision of the great settler colonialist, in my view, the greatest settler colonialist is Jan Smuts, um, uh, together with Cecil John Rhodes. Um, they wanted the whole of Southern Africa, forget South Africa, to be a white man's country in Africa which means they understood that they were creating a kind of artificial, virtual European reality on African soil. Um, my controversial suggestion is that their project has partly succeeded in part because of the complicity of the Congress tradition. Hmm. Not only because of that, obviously because of um, how the movement of time makes entrenches certain things and makes them hard to be moved, how global power dynamics have posed certain restrictions on how far a sustainable change can happen, um, and how globalization and globalizing imperialism has operated to set to the terms. And also the limits of the fact that the anti-colonialists themselves were already formed by colonial modernity. All those things coming together means that these guys have succeeded. You know, so I often argue against people who try to make things look like the project of the settler colonialists and of the ANC failed. I don't think it failed. I think if you tell you the, the, what's it, tell you the numbers, um, they got what they wanted. That's the perverse aspect of it. Mm. African-American historian by the name of Sadia Hartman talks about how uh, certain kinds of black humanism like to turn a narrative of defeat into an opportunity for celebration. Um, Partly also because it's too unbearable to think about, did we actually fail? You know, if you think about what the basic propositions of settler colonialism are, blacks must be landless, they must be dependent on a white economy, and they must be subservient to white culture. That's South Africa. <laughs> hmm. And the ANC's program of transformation is those three things. Integrate blacks into the uh, imperial and capitalist political economy. Make sure that the schooling system helps black people to acclimatize to white society. Where's the failure? Where's the, where's the failure there? You know? To their credit, they were thinking about issues of language. I mean, issues of language come up with all kinds of practicalities around where the first thing that the ANC had was the regionalization. So the ANC is, I mean, our liberation leaders didn't deal with how colonized they were. In other words, you've got to ask yourself, before I lead this struggle, 
Where am I at? So most of the agency's models of culture are Bantustan logics. The traditional codes being Bantustan. Their language policies are regionalization. So in the, in the Cape, it's, it's UCT must take care of Istrosa, UP must take care of Sibedi, and so forth. It's a colonialist you know, they have such a colonialist political geography, I don't know where to begin. And this is precisely if you have the wrong analysis of something, even in the, your, your solutions and your programs of change are all going to reflect those kinds of problems, right? So you have the ANC basically trying to revive a colonial, bifurcated legal system in South Africa today in order to appease chiefs. When we know the history of traditional leadership in the colonial encounter. That's a sign, not simply of bad, I mean, people, so my critique of certain varieties of political analysis and political science is that everything is read technocratically. It's because the ANC wants to secure votes or wants to please the chiefs. No, it's because the ANC adheres to a colonialist discourse of race and space. That's harder to accept as a critique than to say it's because they're corrupt or because they want to maintain cultural strongholds in ethnic communities. No, it's more fundamental than that. It's a colonialist discourse that's, that's in operation. So you see it in the parliamentary systems. You see its, it's, it's concept of civilization is colonialist. Um, that's the crisis of South Africa. And it shows up every once in a while uh, in, in the cultural tensions and clashes that are happening, you know. It's unthinkable in a black majority society that white teachers can tell black students that their hair is wild, for example. <laughs> Where are we? Is this out of Africa? What, you know, I mean, kind of is this, like, you know, when the, the discovery of Africa again in 2019 to tell students to cut their hair or to, Africa, in an African country, you know, that's the alienated, pricks, the, the alienated subjectivities that are all over South Africa, right? Our conceptions of neatness and beauty and, and decency and civility always have something to do with blackness being tamed or managed. And that's, that's, that's settler colonialism, control the natives, right? So that's all there in how South Africa operates. But how do you remain positive then? You don't, you don't. Um, you, you, you know, um, there's a book, again, by a, a, a theorist by the name of Lauren Belland called Cruel Optimism. What, what she's interested in showing there is how optimism is not simply a happy-go-lucky, feel-good feeling. It's, 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 on the one hand, it's a psychic mechanism for not dealing with unbearable um, histories and, unbearable, and an unbearable condition. So it's, it's a fundamentally um, hostile to political complexity optimism, right? It, it skips the process of confrontation with the unbearable, with the traumatic, with the, with the impossible, with the difficult, complex facts of our social being. But on the other hand, optimism is a way of concealing one's investment in a particular order. So optimism is not an innocent, oh, I'm just, I just, I'm just positive about, people love saying that, I love my country. Why do you love it? You know, it's like, <laughs> so I'm not a patriot. I mean, I, find, I think constitutional patriotism has destroyed our ability to grapple with difficult questions because, it, because, because we preempted the analysis too quickly. You know, it's almost like just before I tell you the worst part of the story, like, you know, the horror movie, just before the, the worst part, you switch off the TV because you want to be positive for the next day. So you never know what happened. And you, so you've never processed that part of the, of the unbearable. And so, and because you haven't, it keeps coming back. 
Well, you did say you were positive, and maybe I was just trying to sort of. Oh get, no, I'm get, positive. Get channel, oh, I'm get, get positive about that. the conditions of resistance. I'm yeah. positive that black people and even sensible white people, and there are very few, are beginning to see that even if they don't think the black consciousness pan-African way is the right way, and by the way, there has many pitfalls. On another day, we can talk about where it was limited. All movements are limited by the time, space, possibility, imagination, and so forth. But I think people are starting to see that what, whatever we need in South Africa has to be a fundamental change. Otherwise, this, what we say we will avoid it. So you mean the, the myths of the new South Africa, for example, is that like, we averted a civil war. No, we didn't. The civil war was sublimated and transferred onto black people, essentially. You know, I mean, look at the death rates in, in, in so-called colored communities. Look at, the town, look at the death rates in these hostile areas. Black people are still in a state of civil war, but it has, been, attacks. It has been moved to... Its, its, and the fear of the settler mind is that the... Um, Civil War will come back to its proper address. <laughs> and um, the reason that so many white academics were traumatized by the student protests in South Africa, which in my view were very mild. Uh, by the way, the protests in Europe, for example, both in 68 and recently, are much more violent, much more confrontational than what the students were doing in the university. But, but the reason that so many of our white colleagues were shocked, I mean, many of them say they have PTSD, they have anxiety, they have stress, and, and so it's because now that confrontation, which is normally safely locked away in rural areas and townships, is coming home to roost. This is Malcolm X's old phrase, the chickens are coming home to roost. So the, we didn't avert a civil war. So that's one of the other things that, I, that my position is. It simply was sublimated, so in other words, it, it, it became structural, socioeconomic, but also very physical. Black people are dying at unnecessarily preventable rates, which is a, we have the highest forms of social violence and sexual violence outside of war. It's a sign of something um, um, bubbling. So I would, I would say that the whole mythology of post-94 has to crash before we can do this. And one of the lines I like repeating is that the jurisprudence of Steve Biko can only emerge on the ruins of the post-apartheid constitution. You can't reconcile them. They can't come together. They're not parallel. They, they are in fundamental tension. You know, and I think more and more people are getting at seeing that we need something fundamental. More and more people are certainly seeing that capitalism has destroyed sustainable life. Forget sure. sustainable, decent human living is being destroyed by the drive to accumulate. It's a centuries-old argument, but people are actually starting to realize, what? I went to school for so many years, I've got a degree, but I can't afford a house, I can't afford a car, but I have to work every day? And suffer the humiliations. I mean, you know, people are starting to see that. So I am, I'm hoping that the contradictions will sharpen. This is an old revolutionary dream, that the contradictions will sharpen. But I also think powers are very cunning and that they, once they realize this, they, they will be... Just like the way the universities now are hosting lectures on decolonization and are asking... I mean, nowadays in interviews, people get asked questions. How have you decolonized your curriculum? No deep thinking about what decolonization actually means and demands, but accommodated so that the contradiction that it poses or the challenge it poses is then watered down as well. So I'm not saying that the, 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 the powers of, of race, class, gender, and capital are sleeping. Uh -uh, they are well away of shifts. But I'm, 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 I'm becoming more and more confident. I'm seeing a lot of change. The way black South Africans, and, it, and it's generational as well, it's the fact that it's a particular generation that doesn't have allegiances to particular traditions of politics. Um, that, that is, this is opening up um, uh, uh, a different black politics in South Africa. 
Um, and it's scaring a lot of people, and the EFF has played an important role, even though the EFF is a charterist formation, but it has played an important role in putting racial inequality, capitalism, on the agenda of politics. People to talk about inequality, for people to see the contradictions that they prefer to simply drive past every morning. Um, those kinds of questions, I think, are more firmly on the agenda than they've ever been. But I mean, I've only been alive for three decades, I can't be sure. <laughs> but um, um, I think... Po from my understanding of the post-94 South Africa, the, 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 the recent period that starts with, with the formation of the EFF and FISMAS 4 is a dramatic shift in political discourse. You can no longer continue as if race and inequality are not fundamental issues. I think that's what I mean, I'm positive. But I'm not an optimist. I find optimism, um, I want to use, I, want, I don't want to say silly, but I find it... Um, I, th I find that it weakens the faculties necessary for ethical and political life. Hmm. That's what I think. And I also think you, you let your guard down if you're too optimistic about anything. Um, but, but the reason I say these are bad words is that pessimism also makes it look like one is invested already in the, in the outcome. No, if, for, if pessimism is anything, anything, it's the claim that things are really bad. Yeah. So I think we need determination more than hope. Joel, on that note, let's... Uh call it a day. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. It's been uh, fascinating. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. I found that uh, discussion quite stimulating, informative, and uh, it's going to inspire me, I think, to go and do some more reading, particularly around... Um, race theory um, Derek Bell somebody I want to to look into and Steve Biko uh, for sure yeah it was you know sometimes I just had to sit and listen I didn't want to be white explaining too much there there were a number of points that resonated for me one his analysis of the post-apartheid project as one that always aimed to maintain black majority landlessness uh, dependency on a white-dominated economy and also to be subservient to white culture. Um, and the other was this whole notion that we avoided a civil war, disavowing me certainly of the notion that we avoided a civil war in this country when if you look at it from another point of view, uh, the civil war continues in the, the murder rates of, of the black majority uh, in this country. I'll put some of Joel's writings up on the audio boom page, and uh, I think you know at the end of it, you know what he what he what he said was, uh, you know, we need determination more than, than hope. Uh, we need to have a proper look at ourselves as a nation, if we can even call ourselves a nation, where we are heading, and um, yeah. What we, what we have now is not working. Um, and that's, I suppose, at a global level as well. Voices from SA is hosted on Audioboom. Please also, you can subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, where you can leave a rating or comment. You can also find Voices from SA on Spotify, Deezer, Radio Public, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. 
until next time i'm nicholas claude cheers <laughs>